My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. You're not supposed to judge a book by its cover. But what about judging it by one little quote on the very top of the cover in small print? A quote that says something almost completely generic, like a nonstop thrill ride. Actually, wait, what about judging the book not by that quote itself, but by the name of the person to whom it's attributed? The person who has allegedly already taken that nonstop thrill ride and come away impressed. This would seem silly if it wasn't for the fact that it happens all the time, if it wasn't a driving force in the publishing industry. It's not just people looking for something new to read, but booksellers looking for titles to place in the window or websites looking for books to review. You can forget judging books by their covers. We judge them by their blurbs. And the world of book blurbs is one of those worlds that's absolutely mystifying to outsiders. How does one go about getting a famous author to blurb your book? Who writes those blurbs? The authors themselves? Their publishers? The author of the actual book? Who makes the ask? Please review my book and say something nice so I can put it on the cover. Do the authors blurbing books actually even read them? And how come... Six words from an author who didn't write the book can make or break the success of the author who did. Today, we'll find out. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Sophie Vershbo is a freelance journalist, a content strategist, a former member of the publishing industry who wrote about the world of book blurbs for Esquire. Hey, Sophie. Hi, thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Have you ever purchased a book because of a blurb? Oh, absolutely. I left publishing the industry about a year, year and a half ago. And so for the first time this summer, I actually found myself in bookstores not knowing what all the the best, biggest books of the year were. And I can tell you this summer, uh, I myself was was looking at blurbs to really help guide me. Okay, so at face value then, like... Why do these things exist? What is the point of a book blurb? Is it that, just that? So book blurbs sort of at face value are used mainly as advanced praise for books. So editors, agents, or primarily the author go out to other authors in that field. If you're a thriller author, you'd probably be looking for other thriller writers, comp authors, or um, other notables in your field, especially if you're writing a nonfiction book, to provide advanced praise, to read that early manuscript, and help start telling a narrative about the book. That praise is often used on the book jacket, so something that the consumers end up seeing. But so much of what my piece investigates is really how these blurbs are used as internal signals more than anything to signal which books are important to other people in the industry. How long has that been going on? Like, how far does the practice go back? 
So the earliest example of the practice is um, actually from 1855. Ralph Waldo Emerson uh, blurbed Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass. He wrote uh, just a really gushing letter to him telling him how much he loved the book. And that was used on the paperback edition of it. That was sort of the first example. That's a hell of a first example. I know. It's a really fun story. And the first example of the word blur being used is pretty fun, too. It was at an American bookseller association dinner in 1907. And a humorist there had actually made his own sort of fake book jacket with a cutout advertisement on it and a fake blurb. And that's sort of how it all started being called that and used more widely. And as early as um, 1936, Orwell in uh, Defense of the Novel talks about how much he hates blurbs. So they've definitely been around for a long time. Well, it's really interesting because you just mentioned, you know, the first one, like Emerson on Whitman is, you know, pretty impressive. And I guess you just kind of indicated that it came from like a a place of genuine praise and, and he was moved to write him this letter. What have book blurbs become? So book blurbs are very common. I worked at two of the big five publishers, um, Simon & Schuster and Random House, and it was just, you know, commonplace books get advanced blurbs. Right. All the authors I spoke to were, were, you know, deeply embedded in this system. So it's very standard for for any author to be doing at this point as part of publishing. But now it's it's expected. And so it's, it's very formulaic. You are encouraged to go out and try and get these blurbs for your book no matter what. And so much of the time, it's a constant cycle of requests rather than, you know, a genuine gushing. And those sorts of blurbs certainly still happen every once in a while. Like a big author will just somehow deliver an amazing book blurb sort of out of nowhere, but it's definitely the exception to the system. You mentioned that authors are expected to do this. What is that process like? Can you give me some more details of of how you go about it? Absolutely. So as I mentioned, it's um, most commonly done author to author, but um, a lot of times your editor or your agent will also help to make those connections. And it was described to me by one bestselling author who asked to remain anonymous, a, a very large author, as Sisyphusian, just a constant cycle of asking and being asked that never ends and you feel like you can never escape. It's a lot of cold pitching and going out to authors you admire and basically asking for an unpaid favor. And the overwhelming majority of people I talked to, and I talked to a lot of people for this story, was that it's just the most miserable part of being an author. Being asked to do it, having to keep asking to do it, just something that everyone seems to really dread. If I'm looking at blurbs on the cover of a book and I see an author that I like has said, like, this is a great book. Has that author always read that book? No, I don't think we can say that the author has always read the book. And I think even more importantly, that the author hasn't always liked the book. Uh It was a little harder to get, you know, a ton of people on record saying, I never read the book and I just give these blurbs. I, I certainly heard anecdotally that that happens and also believe that that happens. But I do think it's more common that authors out of a sense of obligation or not wanting to ruffle feathers in what is a professional or otherwise friendship between authors, you don't want to say something mean about your friend's book or hurt their chance. I also spoke to one author who I thought made a great point of saying, you know, she was asked to 
blurb a book of an author. She's a white author and a, a Black author who she had a professional relationship with, and she would never want her perspective in that conversation to be, you know, an overly loud one. And so she felt obligated to give the book a better blurb for a reason like that. That's just, you know, one really anecdotal example. But I think there's all sorts of reasons of sort of a survivor's guilt of I'm the author who is being asked to blurb now. I want to, you know, help other authors and help advance them in the industry. I can't just go trash their book in a blurb. I need to say something nice. Who gets asked to write these blurbs? I mean, obviously, the big names must carry a lot more weight. Like, I know, dating back about 10 years or so, you started to see, like, George R. R. Martin being the guy on the front of all those books after Game of Thrones got big, right? And uh, Michael Lewis is on the front of all the, like, airport nonfiction books. <laughs> How do those writers handle that? In a stressed and sort of frazzled way, it seems the larger best-selling authors I spoke to express that if they were to do all of the blurb requests they get, they would never have any time to write. And I think there's a really important uh, quote in my article from an author named Clayton Childress, who wrote a book about the publishing industry um, a few years ago, that there is no middle class in publishing. And that is a thing that I always kind of shock people when I tell them about my experience in the industry is that we have these authors who drive the bulk of money for publishers. They publish a book every year or every two years, and those are the authors that keep the lights on. And then you have mostly everyone else. And that biggest class of authors, the ones who they feel really have the potential to move books in stores because they have so many fans, are the ones who get asked over and over again. What about critical praise or condemnation for a book that gets taken as an excerpt and used on these blurbs? There are lots of stories uh, about this from the film industry, right? Where they will take reviews and they'll take like three words in the middle of like a sentence that says this movie's terrible. And it says like, it's not very exciting. And then you see very exciting. Does that happen in blurbs? You know, I I mostly explored author to author or, you know, expert to expert blurbs for this rather than editorial praise. I can tell you sort of anecdotally from working in the industry that, yes, that, that absolutely happens. You know, people slice and dice editorial words to get the best editorial blurb possible on the back of the book. What I'm really interested in in this piece is how much blurbs affect everything that happens even leading up to a book being on sale. And editorial blurbs primarily come after a book's on sale. And primarily before a book, you're really only looking at trade reviews. And I think they're probably a little less uh, slicey and dicing with those. So what does a blurb do before publication then? We'll talk in a minute about who might see a blurb and buy it. But what does it do before the book ever hits shelves? The way I really look at blurbs, and I think the central thesis of my article, is that blurbs are a smoke signal that gets sent up by certain people in the publishing industry to say to other people in the publishing industry, hey, look over here, this book matters. There are so many books published every single year that there is just no way that people working at publishers, whether they be promotion teams, the publishers, or, you know, editorial directors themselves, the salespeople, and then going into booksellers could possibly read all those books right. and make informed decisions on their own of, these are the best books to have. And so those signals need to come from somewhere. And because blurbs are one of the earliest signals that we get, they're coming 
Usually before a book is on sale, they're coming as everyone internally is deciding how much attention to give this book. And we're talking about things like marketing budget. If an author goes on tour, how much internal support is put behind because publishers have to prioritize like any other business. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. How do authors prioritize, especially ones like Stephen King or George Martin or whomever that must get hundreds or more of these requests? How do they determine which books get their blurbs? So my, my simplest answer would be, I'm sure that's a, a personal decision for everyone. But my, my sort of more real answer is that this is a favor-based economy. This is a connections-based industry like so many other industries. And so a lot of those requests are coming from your agent or from your editor saying, hey, do me a solid, you know, please read this book. I think you'll like it. I think you'd be a good fit for this. So much of what happens to a book in its life cycle and whether or not it succeeds is based on who the author is connected to and how many sort of favors they're able to call in to get their book more attention. It's not the only thing, but it is a major factor in what books get attention. How much of that is publishers leaning on the authors they have a good relationship with and saying like, this book is our priority, make it your priority, make sure you give us a good blurb on this one? I don't have anyone directly on record in my story saying that, but anecdotally, I feel comfortable saying that, yes, a, a lot of these things are, yeah, sort of comfortable relationships and and encouraging that. I think even actually, um, here here's a good example, is Gary Steingart, author, is on record as having been one of the biggest blurbers for a long time. It was something he was teased about. <laughs> um, I think he had a, 150 blurbs for a while in sort of the mid-aughts. And he went on record as saying, it's just too many requests now. I can't do it except for the people I'm friends with and except for my editor's other clients and except for my other my agent's other clients. See, that's honest. There you go. <laughs> I like that. What makes a good blurb versus a bad blurb? And I'm not talking here about the names underneath it. Obviously, bigger is better. But like, is there any kind of knowledge out there about what people are actually looking for or basing decisions on when they're reading blurbs? I think the place where this comes up the most is often in genre fiction. So in publishing, you have you know, so many different genres. But when I think about ones where people really lean in, you have some of the most voracious readers. I think of romance readers and science fiction or uh, science fiction readers, thriller readers, people who have a strong affinity for that. And so mm -hmm. I actually do oftentimes think the name is the most important thing, is saying, if you liked my book, you will also like this book. I, I think we'd be really hard-pressed to look across different blurbs and see a huge difference between them. I would do anything to have the time to put into a massive data study project. Right. A word cloud. 
oh God, I would love to see how many times luminous is said. (laughs) But I do think it really is so much more about the name. One that really does stand out to me is Ta-Nehisi Coates' Between the World and Me. I started at Random House right before that book came out. And so I, I really came in midway and was able to sort of watch that. It was just such an incredible campaign for such a powerful book. And Toni Morrison submitted a blurb for that saying that he was the new James Baldwin. So I think that there's always sort of a blurb that rises to the top. There's always that exception of one just sort of so remarkable, so telling from someone with that big of a name that can really change the trajectory of a book, both internally and with consumers. In your piece, you describe a little bit of the historical and current inequality in terms of who can secure these blurbs from these big names and who is able to write them. Can you kind of explain that a bit? Absolutely. So like anything that is based on who you know, if that is a system traditionally based in historical inequity, those connections are going to reverberate out and keep the system very insular. It's a self-reproducing system. Mm -hmm. And this is hopefully no surprise to any listener, but book publishing is traditionally full of a lot of inequity, especially in terms of who works within the companies and in terms of what books are published. And, you know, during my time in publishing, I certainly saw a a lot of incredible people making a lot of effort, but anyone who says that this is not currently still a huge problem, would be completely lying to themselves. And when you have systems, again, that are based on your editor making connections for you, your agent making connections for you, if historically that agent or editor has only worked with people of a certain economic bracket or primarily certain, um, primarily white people, or any other, you know, marginalized sort of group we want to we want to talk about not getting attention that has the potential to replicate outwards. And I spoke to a few different IPOC authors who felt that there were frankly just less best-selling big name IPOC authors for them to ask for blurbs and get blurbs from because the ones who had risen already to that best-selling status were even more over-asked than their white counterparts because there's fewer of them. If nobody likes asking for them, none of the big authors like doing it. And, you know, now that they are on every book, I imagine there's a law of diminishing returns here when, like, you know, you just, you expect to see good blurbs from big authors on, on a new book. Like, what? how do these continue? I think they continue because no one knows what to do instead. There's also the fact, and I I didn't get to touch on this on my article, it it was already quite lengthy, but one thing that I I wish I'd been able to talk about a little bit was how there's really been diminishing book reviews as well. So those editorial blurbs you mentioned earlier, there's fewer of those to promote the book because there's fewer book editors and fewer magazines and literary journals and all these things that are also relied on, especially as you talk about quotes to put on marketing assets or ways to get booksellers, you know, to pay attention. So I I think part of the problem is that they are so ubiquitously used, it's kind of hard to think about not having them. I suggest what I think are two pretty reasonable suggestions at the end of my piece that really bubbled up from different conversations I had. 
One being to push back on how early blurbs are being solicited. I talked to a lot of people who mentioned that earlier in their careers or that they had seen blurbs really being asked for, you know, the manuscripts in, the galleys in, it's being sent out to press where, you know, five to six months before a book is out. And that's when blurbs are happening to land on the final cover. And I was talking to people who were asked to include blurbs on their book proposal. That is asking someone to have connections before they have even been given the opportunity to get one foot in the industry, to get an agent and have that be your first step and have someone tell you how to do this. So that's really favoring people who have been to MFA programs. Once again, historically, you know, upper financial bracket. The second thing is to have repeat bestselling authors rely more on what is traditionally called praise for the authors instead of blurbs. So that's either editorial reviews from previous books of theirs or blurbs from previous books of theirs and using those as promotional materials for their new books and on the um, hardcover copy. For the paperback, sure, put new stuff on it, but don't make these bestselling authors Keep going out and asking for blurbs time and time again, sometimes every year or every other year. That also frees up best-selling authors to, instead of having to keep giving favors to their other friends in the industry because they're beholden to them because they get blurbs, to free up their time to hopefully blur more debut new voices. That sounds like a solution that would at least improve the value of blurbs to the consumer. Is there an appetite to fix this in the publishing world? And this is kind of the last thing that I want to get into. You know, you kind of talked about it a little bit in terms of, you know, reviews are vanishing, um, editorial support for book coverage in general is dwindling. Like, is there an, an appetite in the publishing industry for finding new paths and shaking things up a little bit? This is a very old media industry. It definitely is. Look, I can tell you the people I talk to are certainly enthusiastic about the idea of changing it. When I report on these publishing stories, I interview a very large amount of people because it's super important to me to make sure that I'm not hearing isolated opinions and drawing conclusions. And the way I get to what I write about in my articles is when one noise is so overwhelming that you think, okay, all these people do really want to change this. I think I'd be naive to say that I actively think that they're going to rise up and, you know, do anything. But I do hope that over time, hopefully this will get a little bit better. I do think one thing a lot of people talk to me about that I do see having the potential to shift this about is social media. Just I I worked in social media uh, within the big five. And so the growth of things like BookTok, Bookstagram, and their ability to move the needle for books So many authors I spoke to said, please stop asking me to blurb and let me just tweet about your book or let me just post about your book. And so I do see potential that as we start to value other kinds of promotion more, something that, you know, takes a little bit longer within a legacy institution, maybe we can shift that burden off of blurbs. Sophie, thank you for this really fascinating discussion. And I love, like I say, a little world within a world. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Sophie Vershbo, writing in Esquire. That was the big story. If you didn't hear, we've got another new podcast, this team, me hosting it. Hopefully, you listening to it. It is called In This Economy. The trailer dropped yesterday. 
You can find a link to it in our show notes. It'll take you to whatever podcast platform you prefer. So you can subscribe or follow or whatever it asks you to do, and you will get weekly episodes starting on November 2nd. I hope you'll check it out. If you just want to check out The Big Story, you know by now to go to thebigstorypodcast.ca, where you can find every single one of our more than 1,300 episodes. The Big Story is available in every podcast player. And of course, if you want it on a smart speaker, just ask it to play The Big Story podcast. Joseph Fish is the lead producer of The Big Story. Robin Simon is also a producer. This week, Christy Chan led our sound design. Stephanie Phillips is our showrunner. Mary Jubrin is our digital editor. Diana Kay is our manager of business development. I am your host and executive producer, Jordan Heath-Rawlings. And we're gone for the weekend. Thanks for listening. We'll talk Monday. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now.